Thank you, Van. You may have a seat. Before I pray, I, I want to just read the text that I'm going to be preaching from this morning. It's 1 Peter 4, uh, verses 1 through 6. Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray. Father, we need you this morning. Uh, without Christ, uh, we can do nothing. So we ask for your presence here this morning. God, as we contemplate what it means to, to suffer, uh, what it means to choose suffering rather than sinning, uh, would you let this word take root in our hearts, not just be something that's said and makes it to our ears, but we need your Holy Spirit to penetrate our hearts this morning. Father, I can get the words to the ears, but you're the one that gets them to the heart. And so, God, I ask you uh, for that favor this morning. Lord, especially if there's someone here um, who's still living in darkness, still doesn't know what it means to be a child of God, still doesn't know what it means to be free from sin. Lord, would you break the chains this morning? Heal spiritual blindness. Let them see Christ for the first time as beautiful. Would you do that this morning in this room? Would you do it across Spartanburg as our sister churches do the same? Lord, and across the globe. Father, we think of our brothers and sisters who are in suffering right now. Uh, where it's not as easy for them to worship you, but they still are faithful to you and are suffering for it. God, would you be their fortress this morning? God, thank you for this opportunity. God, take this, this loaf and feed 5,000 souls this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Like I said, we're First Peter again this morning, chapter 4, first, first six verses. Um, I consider this to be my uh, last sermon in sort of a mini-series within First Peter. Not my last sermon in First Peter, but sort of a mini-series that sort of cropped up I didn't expect, and I called it Suffering for Righteousness' Sake, Better to Suffer for Doing Good. It all started when Peter told us back in chapter 3, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Returning a blessing for evil is suffering for righteousness' sake. And Peter followed this statement with three motivations as to why a Christian should live this way, why we should live a life of suffering for righteousness' sake. And his first point was that you were called to this in verses 9 to 12 of chapter 3. 
So you were, you were born to do this. You were made to suffer for righteousness' sake. And then he said, God is suffering over, or sovereign over our suffering. Therefore, don't be afraid to live this way because God is in control of the suffering. And then his final point was sort of his climax point was Christ suffered this way. Verse 18 started with the words, for Christ also suffered. So remember, God is not asking us to do something that he has not already done. If Christ suffered this way, why should we not also suffer this way? If Christ, perfectly righteous, should suffer, why not us? So there you have it. There's sort of three motivations onto why we should live this lifestyle of suffering for righteousness' sake. I spent one sermon on these two points and then an entire sermon on sort of this climactic point of Christ suffered this way. In today's text, Peter sort of comes to a conclusion, right? Based on all that, I, all that I've just said, now do this with it, right? In verse 1 of chapter 4, you heard this, since, because of everything I just said, therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. If Christ suffered in the flesh, believers, this is what you do with it. Now that you know that it is better to suffer for doing good, with a climactic argument being that Christ suffered this way, what do you do with this knowledge? How does this doctrine impact our daily lives, right? The answer to the question, to that question, is the subject of, of this morning's text. And I want to give you, just starting out, I want to give you a one-sentence sort of summary of Peter's main application here for us. I'll give you one sentence summary, and then we'll spend the rest of the time unpacking that sentence. The main application relative to suffering for righteousness' sake that Peter's trying to get into our hearts and our minds this morning is this sort of one sentence summary. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, resolve that you would rather suffer than sin. Let me say that again. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, resolve today, right now, that you would rather suffer than sin. Christ suffered for sin, therefore in Christ, by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, resolve that I will choose suffering rather than to remain in my sin. If I could give you a picture of today's teaching, the picture would look like this, simply suffering over sin. I choose to suffer rather than to sin. Suffering for righteousness' sake equals this choice, suffering over sin. Let me give you some examples of how this would work out in your daily life so that it makes sort of more real for us. I'm just going to read a series of sentences, and maybe one of them apply to you, but then there's a thousand ways I could say this, but here's a few to sort of get our minds working this morning. Since Christ suffered in the flesh... I will break up with that boy or girl who is drawing my attention away from Christ and suffer loneliness. You're choosing loneliness, suffering over perhaps an ungodly relationship, a relationship that God is not pleased with. So you choose the suffering over the sin. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, I will abstain from the ungodly party my friends are going to and suffer being alienated from my friends. You suffer alienation because you don't want to participate in a party that's maybe displeasing to God. Suffering over sin. How about this one? 
Since Christ suffered in the flesh, I will start that ministry and suffer humiliation if it fails. Risk of humiliation over, over disobedience, not listening to God to move to that next thing in your ministry. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, I will share the gospel with my coworker and suffer looking like a religious nut at work. Looking like a religious nut or disobeying the Great Commission. Suffering over sin. How about this one? <clears throat> since Christ suffered in the flesh, since he died, I will forgive or ask forgiveness of that spouse or friend or father or mother or child and suffer the humiliation that comes with it. Suffering, maybe looking like you're the one that messed up, over living in unforgiveness. Suffering over sin. Last one. Since Christ suffered in the flesh... I will attempt to break my addiction to pornography or alcohol or drugs by telling a godly friend, my spouse, my parents, and suffer the humiliation that might cause. Suffering, letting people in to your life to see the things you don't want them to see over remaining, hiding in sin. Suffering over sin. This, you see, this is, this is not just like this heady doctrine, like, okay, now I'm smarter because I know that I should suffer for righteousness' sake. This is what we deal with on a daily basis. All righteous suffering begins with this question. Are you willing to suffer rather than sin? That's the question we should be presented with on a, on our, in our daily lives sometimes minute by minute, with the sins that we struggle with. Are you willing to suffer rather than sin? Whether the choice is as big and as grand as either deny Christ or be burned at the stake, the stuff that books and movies are written about, or if it's small as choosing not to participate in an immorality and miss out on a, uh, a, a fleeting pleasure. All, it hits all the range. All believers are faced with this proposition in some form or fashion. Suffer or sin? Let's jump into the text. The first thing that Peter tells us is that the battle against sin and the fight to endure suffering starts in the mind. The battle against sin, the fight to endure suffering starts in the mind. Again, I put these two things close together because they're so closely related there are two sides of the same coin, I believe. Either you sin or you suffer. Either you choose to battle against the sin and endure the suffering that that brings, or you give in to the sin and avoid the suffering. I'm just going to give in and avoid the suffering. That's the choice that we have. These things are closely related. And I want to put a little parenthesis right here. The suffering I'm speaking of today is avoidable suffering. The suffering that Peter's speaking about in this text is avoidable suffering, not the suffering that comes from maybe loss or an illness. This is avoidable suffering, so keep that in your, in your mind, so close that parenthesis. So here's the first thing. Peter says, tells us, the battle against sin and the fight to endure suffering starts in your mind. Look what he says in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. 
Same way of thinking. It starts in the mind. I love that Peter uses this word, where is it, arm. Arm yourselves. All the translations that I looked at rendered the word the same way as arm. It's a Greek word that is usually means military preparation. So, so Peter's choice of words here is a reminder that this whole suffering over sin proposition is a battle. This is a war that we are engaged in, believers. Not a war against governments, not a war against people, but a war against our propensity to choose ease and comfort and pleasure over suffering. It's a war. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. How do you prepare for suffering that will inevitably come? Right? Suffering is coming. How do you prepare for it? Put it in your minds right now that it is coming, that it's on its way. If it happened to Christ, it'll happen to you. If you're living in the footsteps of your Savior, sort of bent on obeying Him no matter what, suffering is going to come. The battle against sin, the fight to endure suffering well, starts in the mind. We have to equip our minds for this battle with the same purpose that Christ had. See, one translation renders this arm yourselves with the same purpose, the same purpose as Christ. Remember Christ's purpose, right? He's not asking us to do something that's purposeless. There is a purpose in suffering for righteousness' sake, and Christ did it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? Why did Christ suffer? That he might bring us to God. I said it in my last two sermons, and I'll say it again this morning. All righteous suffering has this purpose, to bring people to God, to point people to Christ. So arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. One commentator kept using the word resolve when she was talking about what Peter's asking us to do here. And I thought, man, what providence that this would be the first message of the year when people are normally making resolutions this time of year. What about this resolution? I resolve in 2020 to choose suffering over sin. Let's choose that now as our resolution. We must prepare ahead of time for suffering. We have to prepare ahead of time for this battle against sin. If we don't prepare ahead of time, the suffering will cause more damage and the temptation to sin will be more difficult to resist. When you're not ready for it, when you're unprepared, when you're not thinking about it, you will be taken by surprise. This is what Peter's trying to avoid. There was a study done during the Vietnam War where researchers were measuring levels of stress in U.S. soldiers as an attack from the Viet Cong Cong would become more evident, more imminent. They did this by taking blood samples and measuring their cortisol levels, which tells you how much stress a person is under. And what they found was that the officers had a higher level of stress as a battle became more imminent, or as the special forces soldiers, their stress level actually went down when a, an attack became more imminent. And so their conclusion was that because of their elite training and preparation, the special forces soldiers were more at ease facing a known threat that they were prepared for, unlike the officers who didn't have as much training. 
So as the attack became more imminent, their stress and fear and anxiety went down because of their preparation and their knowledge that it was coming. Knowing that the battle was coming and being prepared for it created a higher probability of success. I think this is what Peter's getting at here when he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The battle is upon us and we must be prepared. Peter is preparing us for war so that when the battle comes, we are ready, thereby reducing fear and anxiety and improving the opportunity for victory over that sin, that temptation. Arm yourselves. Being unprepared to suffer is a dangerous way to live the Christian life. If we think that we're going to walk around in ease and comfort and we're saved now, everything's all good, I'm not going to battle with sin because I know God, it's false. Peter is reminding us today to arm yourselves for the suffering. Arm yourselves for the battle against sin. I've been talking about the connection between suffering and sin, and now Peter gets to it himself. Look at the last phrase in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Why? For whosoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Why arm yourselves with the same thinking of Christ? Why arm yourselves... Uh, why choose the suffering over sin? Answer, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Got it? All right, good. Let's move on. No. What in, the world does, what in the world does this mean? Like, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It doesn't mean that sufferers are perfect and they won't sin again. Neither does it mean that when you experience suffering, that there's some sort of special sanctification here that will help you more effectively fight sin. Peter is simply addressing all believers here. The assumption is that all believers suffer in the flesh. So let's take this for whoever has suffered in the flesh as just all believers, right? If you have denied yourself, taken up your cross, following Christ, the New Testament assumption is that you are a fellow sufferer with Christ. So if you're a believer, you fit into this category here, okay? So all believers have ceased from sin. All right, we got half of it. We're halfway there. All believers have ceased from sin. What does ceased from sin mean? This little last few words of this verse here. Other Bible translations are more helpful here. They render this done with or through with. So all believers are done with or through with sin. What Peter is communicating here is what the Apostle Paul communicated to us in the book of Romans chapter 6. For, who has, for the one who has died, Peter calls that suffering in the flesh, has been set free from sin, Peter calls that cease from sin. And Paul's conclusion is, Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. This is what Peter is saying when he says, Forever I suffered in the flesh has ceased from or is done with sin. Believer, according to God, according to Scripture, according to your new position, you are done with sin. Again, it doesn't mean that you won't sin and that you won't struggle with sin. If you believe that lie, 
that says that you're a Christian, therefore you'll never sin, then you'll live in misery and despair in the Christian life and you'll be left ineffective because you're always thinking, man, why can't I get this right? You will sin, but get this, you're also done with it. You will sin, but you're also done with it. How so? Your passions, your longings, your desires have changed. You will sin, but what you're chasing after has changed. Follow Peter's thought here into verse 2, because verse 1 here is not the end of his sentence. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live in the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions before the will of God. What Peter means here by, from, by cease from sin, it means you have a changed passion. You're no longer living for human passions. Yes, you'll get tripped up in sin, but the passion of your life has changed from pleasing yourself to living in the will of God. You have a transformed passion. No, not perfectly, but transformed none, nonetheless. So my question is, where is your passion Is it for living the will of God or is it for pleasing yourself? How do you know you're living for these human passions here, as the text says? How do you know that? Think of passions as desires and longings, cravings. Ask yourself, what what drives your life decisions? Are the jobs you take the friends you keep, the people you help, the pleasures you seek? Are they informed by your own longings and cravings? Or are they they informed by the will and desires of God? Where do your passions lie? Let me get back to Peter's point here so we don't get lost in the weeds. And I want to summarize the two verses to keep us on track with Peter's thought process. So think of verse 1 and 2. Since Christ suffered, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking because in Christ you are done with sin. Set on a course to live the rest of your life in the will of God. That's what Peter's getting at here. Because of your new status in Christ, you're done with sin. You're so done with sin, so sick of sin, so through with sin that you would rather suffer than to continue in sin. Have you arrived at this point in your life that you're done? You're done with giving into it. This is the resolve that Peter is after, choosing suffering over sin. Verse 1 and 2 of of 1 Peter 4 is the radical life change that happens when we become children of God. He or she is done with sin and ready to suffer for it, just like Christ did. Peter goes on in verse 3 here and drills further down into this idea of being finished with sin. Look at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter says, in Christ, 
You've moved beyond the things that unbelievers are passionate about. You have a new passion now. For the time that is past suffices. Your past experience with sin is sufficient. I'm here to tell you that. It's sufficient. Whether you're 5 or 95, you've done enough sinning. You lived long enough in that type of lifestyle. It's time to be passionate about the will of God. Stop living in the ignorance of unbelievers as to the reality of God and the dangers of sin. Peter said something similar to this earlier on in his letter. If you remember back in chapter 1, almost the same thing. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Believer, your heart, your mind, your soul have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit as to the dangers of living in sin. Therefore, resolve to live for the will of God. You're no longer ignorant about such things. We can't claim ignorance. You spend enough time being passionate about pleasing yourself. Peter says it's time. It's time to stop living still like you're ignorant because you're not. Living like you're not a child of God because you are a child of God. Be done with sin in such a way that you're not afraid to suffer for it. Peter describes here what unbelievers are passionate about. You have this list here at the end of verse 3. And I thought about going through each one, but as I sort of studied each one, it became very clear that they all have this common thread to describe what Peter is saying here. And the common thread is that of unrestrained desire. There's an unrestrained desire to please yourself, whether it be food or sex or drink or money or power. It's a culture of unrestraint without regard to the will of God. That's what Peter's getting at here. One commentator said this about those terms. All terms refer to practices that have in common a lack of self-control. A character flaw leading to the behaviors that are a self-destructive violation of God's standard and are harmful to others. I want you to remember this as sort of my summary of this quote. A lack of self-control is self-destructive. A lack of self-control is self-destructive. It's true in all areas of life. The overarching message behind this list here is unrestrained, unrestrained pursuit of pleasing self. And Peter says for the believer, those days are behind us. We're done with that pursuit. We have a new passion. We have a new pursuit. Now it's time to live for something else, something different, mainly the will of God. Okay, so your passions have changed, and you choose not to partake in the sinful behaviors of culture. So now what happens? Look at verse 4. With respect to this, the way the world lives, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you for it. Enter suffering. See, there's, there's a twofold response uh, when you live this way from the unbelieving world. The first response is surprise. 
The text says that they are surprised, right here, when you do not join them. Join them literally means run with them. You don't run with the same crowd you used to. You don't do the same things that, that they do. And they're surprised that you've stopped running with them in their frenzied pace of their disappointing pleasure. You look strange. You look like an alien. If it, if it's the letter, the first Peter, the, the whole letter, that is this idea of that we're aliens and strangers in this world, and now you look like one, right? If an alien or an alien was here on stage with me, we'd all be looking at him because <laughs> he looks strange. We'd be surprised, and that's what the world does when you say, "I'm not going to join you in the same things that you do," and it leaves them in wonder. And where does the wonder lead? Where does the surprise lead? Their second response is they malign you, right? They're surprised and then they malign you. Enter suffering. This is righteous suffering. Now, you might think like, I'm sort of passive here, right? I'm just, I'm not really doing anything to that. I'm just abstaining from the things that they're doing. So why in the world would, would they malign me? And the answer is, your abstinence is a silent judgment on their lifestyle. You are implying what they're doing is, is wrong. In fact, you're saying God is not pleased with them, and that is a very heavy indictment. And so what do they do? They malign you. One translation says they heap abuse on you. And so now what's happening? They're judging you. This is their judgment on you. In a sense, you are suffering the judgment of culture by their abuse. They're saying, you're wrong by your abstinence, therefore, you need to be punished for it. However, their judgment stops at death. And this is where Peter's getting to here. If their verbal abuse turns to physical abuse and their physical abuse turns to death, that's where their jurisdiction ends. They can't do any more to you. And that's the comfort that Peter offers in verse 5. But they, the people that heap abuse, the people that are maligning you, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter's encouragement to us is that our persecutors may be allowed to judge us in the flesh, but we serve a God who judges the living and the dead. The comfort Peter offers is that they may malign you in this life, but Christ will judge them in the end. They will have to give an account to God on how they treated you. Death will not enable them to miss judgment. That's the point Peter's making here. They can do all that they want to you, but even death will not allow them to avoid the judgment of God. You may receive judgment now, but vindication is coming because you serve this God. You serve the God that is the judge of the living and the dead. You might be judged in this life, but you will be saved from the judgment that comes after death. That's the point here. So continue to resist sin, even though it might bring suffering because your suffering will end. In fact, this is the very reason the gospel was preached. This is why I'm here today. This is why Richard is up here every week. We preach the gospel 
so that you may escape the judgment that is coming after death. That's the one you want to avoid. The truth is that gospel power reaches beyond the grave. Therefore, it is better to choose suffering over sin. That's Peter's point here. And this is where Peter brings his point to a close in verse 6. Look how he says it. For this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. For this reason. What reason? Like, why, why is the gospel preached? Look at what the conclusion at the bottom. That they might live in the spirit the way God does. That, that, that when we die, we're with God in the spirit. We're living the way God does in the spirit. We preach the gospel because it has resurrection power. The gospel gives us the resolve to choose suffering over sin because it has the power over the grave. It has power over ultimate suffering. And that's why I'm up here today. That's why we preach the gospel. The, the phrase, even to those who are dead, is a bit confusing for this, for this reason. This is, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. NIV helps us get it right, so I'll put that version up here. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. Peter's not saying that the gospel was preached to the dead. That's impossible. The question Peter is answering is, what good is preaching the gospel to the living if they're just going to die just like the rest of mankind? Like, what good is it? I'm sure Peter was getting heat. Like, the people you're preaching the gospel Peter, to, Peter, they're dying. And Peter is sort of in, is, is defending the fact that the gospel has power beyond the grave. Death does not nullify the power of the gospel. We can choose suffering over sin because we know the gospel has resurrection power, right? Because of this, resurrection power. The gospel was preached to the living so that even after death, he may live in the spirit the way God does. This is what we're after. Death is our judgment in the flesh, right? So, that's what this, little, this middle sentence, middle phrase means. That though these folks have died in the flesh, they were judged just like everybody else. Unless Christ comes back, we're all going to experience this judgment in the flesh where we're going to die. But Peter says this is why we preach the gospel, though, so that we can be part of this last phrase here, that we might live the way God does. This is why we preach the gospel. Those who have died, who responded to the gospel while alive, now live in the spirit the way God does. So what good is preaching the gospel to the living if they're just going to die like the rest of mankind? Answer, the effectiveness of the gospel continues after physical death because it makes you alive in the spirit the way God is. That's why we preach the gospel. And that's why it's better to suffer than sin. Because this life is not the end for those who believe. We preach the gospel because it has resurrection power. We even have an example of this. Christ, as always. For Christ also suffered 
once for sins, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Just what he said in chapter 4, verse 6 about us. Christ did it. Christ was the forerunner in passing from death in the flesh to life in the spirit. Death brings no loss for those who die in Christ. You see, the gospel was never intended to save anyone from physical death. The gospel is intended to save us from final condemnation and the wrath of God, which is far worse than physical death. You see, physical death does not exempt from judgment those who reject the gospel in this life. It does not exempt you. Nor does it render the gospel ineffective for those who committed themselves to it when they heard it in this life. This is the whole point of evangelism. The point of evangelism is to prepare people for judgment. So I end with this. And with a warning for those who remain in unbelief and an encouragement for those who believe. My warning for those in this room that remain in unbelief is that God is giving you chance after chance after chance after chance to respond in this life to the gospel. And again, he's giving you that chance this morning. If you continue in your unbelief, even death will not exempt you from the judgment that is coming in eternity in hell. The gospel and your surrender to it will save you from final condemnation and the wrath of God. So I plead with you to accept God's offer of salvation this morning. Don't leave here without responding in faith and repentance to the gospel. God is reaching out to you this morning. The encouragement for believers is to resolve now to choose the suffering over the sin. Because even if you suffer to the point of death, you will live in the spirit the way God does. It's worth it. Since Christ suffered, arm yourselves with the same purpose because you in Christ are now done with sin and set on a course to live the rest of your life for the will of God, who is the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Choose suffering over sin. Let's pray. Father, it's easy to say, easy to resolve here in this room uh, that we would rather suffer than sin, God, but oh, how hard it is. So, Father, we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit's power. We need Christ. We need our Father helping us in this battle. Father, we confess that we can't do it alone. We confess that we've tried and failed. And so on this first Sunday in 2020, God, we, we ask for your help as we resolve to suffer rather than sin. Father, if there's somebody here that's still living in unbelief, still living in human passions and human pursuits of pleasing themselves. God, would you break that? Um, would you penetrate their heart with the light of the gospel? Let them see the face of Jesus Christ and reach out. May today be the day that 
that they turn away from that sin, that they break that addiction, that they ask for forgiveness, that they mend that relationship with their spouse or their child. May today be the day that they commit to serve you overseas, to serve you maybe full-time vocation, to serve you at work, over a cup of coffee with a friend. God, help us resolve to choose the suffering over the sin. Help us see with clear eyes that no matter the suffering here in this life, we have life with the Father coming. We have life with Christ coming with the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So make that real, make that true in our hearts and our lives. In Christ's name, amen.